Well, take your Bibles and turn to, maybe I should say, turn on your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Turn on your Bibles or turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to be in the Word fast and um, pretty at a fur- pretty furious pace tonight, and we'll come back and sing some more during our time around the Lord's table. We're going to take as our scripture for study this evening the entire chapter of Ecclesiastes 9. If you'll know when we notice when we go back and look at the study in Ecclesiastes 2, we were sometimes taking part of a verse and spending an entire time on that. The more you advance in the book of Ecclesiastes, the more repetitive and, and um, uh, fast it becomes. Solomon is intending to circle the wagon almost like a whirlwind to look back and forward, back and forward, back and forward to accent where he's going to go in chapter 12. And this is one of those chapters that, except for a few verses, is very repetitive of things we've already learned, already studied. Now, there's a lesson in and of itself in that. If God intends, through the inspiration of his spirit and the canonization of his word, to say things multiple times and more than once, what does that tell us? First of all, what does that tell us about us? We need to hear it again and again and again. What does that tell us about God? He's a father and he knows children. How many times as a father or a parent do you tell children something one time and it sticks and you never have to say it again? If that's the case, if you would disciple Kim and me, we would love to meet with you after the service and set up our first counseling session. Let me just read this because it's, it's a powerful tonic as a unit. If you have a New American Standard, I'm not sure what other Bibles say, but at the header of the New American Standard of chapter 9, it says, men are in the hand of God. That means an editor, not an inspired editor, but an editor looked at this whole chapter and looked at it as one main paragraph with its central theme as this, men are in the hand of God. I've entitled this chapter, The Happiest Place on Earth. And now I'm going to go ahead and give you the conclusion. The happiest place on earth is where you are with God. The most unhappy place on earth is wherever you are without God. Let me just read this chapter in its total, and then we'll go back and very quickly march through it. I want us to take it just as one unit first, though. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Solomon says, For I have taken all this to my heart, And explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It's the same for all. There is one fate for all the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity, and in their hearts throughout their lives, afterwards they go to the dead For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. The living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything. 
nor have they any longer reward for their memories forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished. They will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God is already, has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which God has given you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. For whether your hand finds, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity, no, or planning, or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. I again saw the sun that under the sun that the race is not to the swift. And the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is the bread to the wise, nor the wealth to the discerning, nor favor to the men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, constructed large siege, work, siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not, not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Interesting passage, isn't it? Interesting perspective on life. Disneyland. Kim and I have an interesting relationship with Disneyland. We lived in Southern California for many years, had many trips to Disneyland. And let me just say from the beginning, Kim and my boys love Disneyland. I detest Disneyland. I, I, I am Scrooge of all things Disney. I understand that. She loves the food. It's really good. I hate the expense. She loves the magic and the fantasy, and I hate the fakery and the cheesiness. She loves the rides, and I hate the lines. She loves the cleanliness, and I hate seeing how many cleaners there are everywhere. She loves the characters, and they scare me. <laughs> Worst of all, she loves It's a Small World. Has anyone ever ridden It's a Small World? The prayer room is open at the end. We'll be glad to counsel you afterwards. I, if you ever ride It's a Small World one time, you are cursed with that song for the rest of your life. It is the most mind-numbing, satanic, no, I won't say that. It's a, it is a, it just, in every language, in every key, in every dimension, for it seems like an hour and a half, all you do is hear how small 
the world really is. And you feel like it's crowding and clouding in on you when you're, when you're writing that. My wife loves It's a Small World. I think she loves it because she loves to drag me on it and then just watch me in torture. <laughs> I hate that incessant song. I just don't like Disneyland. I don't like the way they do it. I just need to exercise my demons here. But they, you know, no, no uh, company can build a building in the surrounding miles of Disneyland that's so tall you can see it from the inside of Disneyland because they want you to think you've entered into a new world. Somehow that's unbiblical. I don't know which verse it is, but somehow that's... I just, look, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a spiritual thing. My, my family loves Disneyland, and I don't. But Disneyland has capitalized on the unhappiness of people and makes no shame in its audacious claim that what? It is the happiest place on earth. Where would you say the happiest place on earth is? Now, I could have fun. I could say in a deer stand on a cold morning with, with uh, the sun rising and the squirrels chirping and the birds coming and you can hear the... I, that, that would be a happy place for me. It wouldn't for everybody. My idea of a happy time is being 10 miles back in the woods for a week, no shower, no, no, nothing but a tent and, and a backpack and a bow. And my wife wants to be, my family pretty much want to be in a hotel with a pool and a beach. Where's your happy place? Where is your happy place? When you think of happiness, doesn't your mind say, if I can go there or do that, 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 that will make me what? Happy. This evening, I want to play off this idea of the happiest place on earth and that theme because no matter our location, we can be happy. Happiness, according to Solomon, is a matter of attitude far more than an attitude of location. I can even be happy at Disneyland with the proper spiritual perspective. In Ecclesiastes 9, as we just read, Solomon draws really a map for us. And this map is how to get to the happiest place on this earth. On this earth, the happiest place on earth is, Solomon calls that under the sun. And remember his little phrase, under the sun, which he uses a few times in this passage. Under the sun is this side of the garden after the fall and before the redemption of the earth, before heaven. It's a broken world. That's life under the sun. And Solomon actually uses this chapter the entirety to say, just what the New American Standard uh, header says, men are in the hand of God, and if you understand and you revel in that, you will and can be happy. But without that knowledge and without that perspective, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing, your happiness will be like that juicy fruit gum we've talked about all the way through Ecclesiastes, right? You throw it in your mouth and it tastes great for a few seconds, but it doesn't last. So let's talk about this from this perspective. If you want to follow an outline, we're going to do this. The happiest place on earth is, and we're going to answer it. So according to Solomon, the happiest place on earth is, number one, where certainty, excuse me, uncertainty is embraced. Where uncertainty is embraced. Where you know that life is uncertain. Because guess what? Life is uncertain, is it not? Look at verse 1. He says, For I have taken all this to my heart. Now stop right there. That's in chapter 8 
Uh, the lessons of chapter 8, if I can go back a few uh, weeks and tell you what that was, all life is not fair. Remember, he says, life is not fair under the sun, but God will make all things right in the final judgment. Solomon reflects on that. He says, for I've taken this, all this to my heart, and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hands, or the hand of God. What a theological statement. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. There's your uncertainty. The secret to the sanity that we need and want in the middle of an unfair, chaotic world, a broken place, is the phrase we understand that we're in the hand of God. Literally, it's at the disposal of God in the Hebrew. The point is that righteous and wise men and women have no guarantee that life will be easy. After talking about the, the unfairness of the world in chapter 8, he says, let's talk about the righteous. Even the righteous need to understand that life is still uncertain. Anything, look at that last phrase, everything is possible and awaits a man or a woman who attempts to live righteously and wisely in this broken world. Being happy, however, is not dependent on these consequences. For our purposes, being a Christian means having a perspective that no matter what happens in life, whether it's good or evil, that we are still in the hand of God. If, if I could summarize one of the main theological points in Ecclesiastes that Solomon continues to cycle, it's this. Life and this world are broken. And you're going to experience some good things. Enjoy them when you do. And when you experience bad things, know that they are temporal and that God has this sorted out in eternity. This isn't the end of our existence. In other words, we can easily embrace the uncertainty of how we will be treated, what will happen. He says, whether we're loved or hated, whether you find love or hatred, we can embrace this uncertainty, these uncertainties, plural, and how we're treated by living in the confidence of God's caring providence that we are in the hand of God. God has never looked away for one nanosecond from your life. Just think about that for a moment. His attention has never been diverted from you, ever one nanosecond of your entire existence. From your conception to your death, God doesn't miss one second. His gaze is continually on us. And even more than that, we're in his hand, he says. But the qualifier is that, the living, is that we are living in righteousness and wisdom. Therefore, the confidence of being in the hand of God makes sense. If you're not living, as this verse says, in wisdom, wise men, righteous men, then you don't have that confidence. You're in God's hand, but it may be aimed at judgment, not at blessing. That's a powerful life to understand your place in the security of God's hand. Number two, the happiest place on earth is where death is regarded. Solomon continues to talk about death. He escorts us over and over, chapter after chapter, verse after verse. He escorts you to your own casket. 
and says, remember, you're going to be here. Remember, you're going to be buried. He even says, remember, people are going to come to your funeral and then go have lunch or dinner and go on with their lives, just as you and I have with others. Verse 2, it's the same for all. He's talked about the righteous. Now he says it's the same for all. There is one fate, one end for the righteous and for the wicked. For the good, for the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. What's the end? What's the final? This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. And what evil, it's not always moral evil. It's just the tragic nature of the consequences of the sin we live in, uh, the sinful world we live in. That there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity in their hearts throughout their lives. And here it is. Afterwards, what happens? You die. They go to the dead. Death is indiscriminate. In chapter 8, verse 12, it taught us that after death, it will be well for those who fear God and eternally tragic for those who don't. But here's the question. If we're talking about the happiest place on earth, how in the world does regarding death lead us to happiness? First, thinking about death brings no semblance of happiness to an unbeliever. Remember Hebrews 4? He, he delivered us from the power of the fear of death, which is the sword that the devil wields in our lives. We fear death. And for a believer, for, for a Christian, death's fear is taken away because death is now the hallway to heaven. It's the older we get, the, the higher we climb to get on the front porch of walking into our eternal dwelling with God. Only a certain terrifying expectation of judgment, according to Hebrews 10, 27, awaits an, an unbeliever who, who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't been saved from his sin, whose righteousness is built on himself, never enough to please God, who hasn't embraced the righteousness of the perfect God-man Jesus Christ, placing that on our ledger before heaven's great court. Terrifying. But for a Christian, death is our final consummation with our Savior whom we love. Death is our spiritual wedding day. It's our spiritual wedding day. That was a day I, I looked forward to, I longed for, that great day when I married my bride Kim. Death is our wedding day with our eternal husband and king, the Lord Jesus. And trust me, the devil will do anything to get us to think about death in any way other than that way. Happiest place on earth is where, where death is regarded. It is healthy to speak and talk about death. In American, Western society in general, rather, we don't speak or talk of death very much. Go to Africa, go to the Eastern Europe, go to parts of Asia that I've been to where death is not sanitized, where you take someone to a hospital and, and pain is mitigated and, 
and uh, uh, the, the, the wonders of medicine helps someone ease into their eternal resting place, and then you walk out and people you never see come and take care of a body. Most of the world, someone you love dies, and you pick up their bodies and take them out and bury them. That's the world in which Solomon lived. That's actually most of the world outside of our day and our time. Death was very present. And think about this. Three people die every second in the world. We've talked about this before. Three people die every second. Now just think about that. Three, six, nine, 12, 15, 18, 21, 24. That God is always acquainted with death. Always. It's always in his... As I'm speaking, three people every second show up before the judge and are judged. For us, we try to think as little about death as possible. Do you realize how often God thinks about death? Why? Because the wages of sin is death. We know why we're going to die, don't we? It's the wages of our sin. But for a believer, for a believer in Jesus Christ, that is no longer a threat. I love Paul. Paul just taunts death. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? Not for a believer. Oh, it's sad. It's sad to part with, with loved ones. I've done many funerals, countless funerals of believers. And I've done countless funerals of unbelievers. The difference between those two experiences with those who know these people who are now in eternity is indescribable. If you regard death, you can actually be happy because you're facing the reality of the temporal nature of our lives and living in, in light of eternity, right? Number three, <clears throat> the happiest place on earth is where desperation is abandoned. He swings right off of the, the darkness of death and says, no, desperation can be and should be abandoned. Verse four, for whatever is joined, whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. I love that. A live dog is better than a dead lion. He's obviously comparing here. Which is the more mighty uh, 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 beast? Which is more threatening? The lion. A live dog is better than a dead lion. Which is better, more dangerous, more useful? He's talking about life and death. For the living know that they will die. But the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward for their memory is forgotten. Now, he's not talking about annihilism here. He's talking about they know nothing in terms of the rewards and the sufferings of this life. They're in eternity. Their memory is forgotten. This is, I mean, I'm not trying to be mean or cruel, but Solomon is pretty graphic all the way through Ecclesiastes by saying, and it's almost a grace. Look, everyone who loves you will mourn when you die, but they won't mourn all the time, every time, all day. That would be a grief unbearable. The ability to go on after the death of our loved one is grace. But Solomon's very quick to say, think of your own life. You're not nearly as significant as you think in this life, so you better live for the next. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished. 
They no longer have a share in all that is done, here it is, under the sun in this world on the life. Desperation about death and judgment can be abandoned by receiving the gospel through faith and repentance. You don't have to live in the desperation. You don't have to live in this idea that you're going to perish and that's it. (coughs) He's telling us that there's hope in life if you do not fear what comes after death. Stacked on top of that. Because it's all dominoes. He's, he's flipping one and it keeps kicking over the next. Fourthly, the happiness place on earth is, lo- is looking back at these realities of death and saying, number four, it's happy where life is savored, where you're enjoying the life God's given. I love verse seven. Go then. You know you're going to die. You know you're going to be forgotten. And by forgotten, it's not forgotten forever. I still remember my parents who have who perished. I remember my grandparents. I remember friends. But you don't think about them all the time. Go then, he says. Eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. I heard somebody just recently preaching on this text saying, here's your justification to go drink. That's not his point. Yes, it's wine. Yes, it's alcoholic. Yes, he drank here. What he's saying is do what makes you happy. People, people typically... It's a little bit funny with my, my friends who want to use this as a justification for, for drinking. And there are other passages you might want to use for that. But if you want to use this as a justification for drinking, you better be a lover of bread. You better spend a, a time in line down at Great Harvest Bread Company because it's equally as a justification for eating bread. They're both there. That's not the point. The point is enjoy what is enjoyable. How much of life is enjoyed by food? It's embarrassing. We were talking about uh, our vacation. We had a, a day of vacation going off to drop our second son off for, for a college next week. We're going to go ahead and spend a, a day of vacation in, in St. Louis. And you know what we began to do? Plan. And you know what our planning was, was all centered on? Where we're going to eat. Is that an ungodly thing? No, right here. Look, he says... Eat your bread and drink your wine. For me, that's a burn-ins burger and a glass of iced tea. Do and eat what makes you happy. God gave us taste buds for a reason. We're, we're not eating manna every day. He says with a cheerful heart. God has approved your works. He's given us the blessings of his life. Use them and enjoy them. I love this. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. What is this talking about? White clothes and an oiled head are Old Testament symbols of being clean and comfortable. Now, you have to understand the the arid, uh, the, the dry climate of the ancient Near East and the world in which they lived. It was always dusty and it was always difficult to keep your clothes clean. White clothes in the Bible is always a symbol of something because it was difficult to bleach or to get something white and difficult to keep something white, as it is today. But at least we have Clorox. They didn't. He's saying, look, let your clothes be white. I hope you have clean clothes. Hope you have enough time and energy and a river nearby to wash your clothes. And he says, let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, typically, uh, we, we want to wash our heads so that oil is going away, right? It's not that kind of oil here. Uh, in this ancient or eastern climate, the way that you would wash and care for your hair, odd as it sounds, is to anoint it 
saturate it, comb through it with olive oil. It actually is a cleansing agent. It's a preserving agent. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing to have oil for your head. Now, it's not only a blessing to have oil for your head. Olive oil is like currency. And to have olive oil in any dimension was to light your lamps and, and make your bread and use it as oil for cooking. To have enough olive oil to do the necessities and then to actually put it on your hair, on your head, was a blessing. Just at least enjoy the ancient Near Eastern reference to that. You don't have to go home and take the olive oil and, and put it on your head. Verse 9. been waiting for verse 9 since we started this study. I love this verse. Enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of your fleeting life, which she has given you under the sun in this life outside the garden, this side of heaven. Enjoy life as a married person if you are married because this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. This is my favorite command to obey in the book of Ecclesiastes. One of my favorites in the whole Bible. Enjoy life with your spouse. I love to put this on notes I would give to Kim. I, I put this in a dedication to a book I put together and dedicated it to Kim, who is my reward. Isn't it interesting, though, by the way, I don't know why I'm saying this, that he tells the husband that your wife is your reward, but it doesn't go the other way, but that's for another time. She's, she's my reward. I want to tell you, and I don't mean this in any kind of odd, weird, braggadocious sense, but I am deliriously happily married. Kim and I took a walk yesterday. Well, I thought we were going to take a little walk six and a half miles later. Um, we were on this walk, and we, we, we got into this fun little spat and this argument and, and whatnot, and we, we ended up, just giving you a little insight into my life, and we ended up just kind of walking, and at one point, got to hold my wife's hand, and I just thought for a moment, what a God to give me this woman in this life, to have me born at the perfect time, to go to school at the right place, to go into ministry at this place to meet this girl, and she said yes. I still don't know why you said yes. There were so many better options. Solomon says, love your spouse. Love your spouse. The grass isn't greener anywhere else. Flip back over just for a moment to, to Proverbs chapter 5. Remember in Proverbs 5, and Proverbs 1 to 9 is the um, section that deals with a uh, 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 parent, uh, or Solomon, dealing with Rehoboam. And more than anything else in those first nine chapters, he deals with the issue of sexual purity. Chapter 5 is the most comprehensive. From beginning to end, it's all about being sexually pure and being focused and satisfied with your spouse. In the middle of that, it, he tells you what to avoid in the first uh, 14 verses. But then he goes to chapter 15 and makes us all blush a little bit. Verse 15, it makes us blush. Drink water from your own cistern, he says, and fresh water from your own well. Notice that Solomon, the man with 900 women in his life, 
says, drink water from your own what? Singular or plural? You think he learned a lesson? When he says drink water here, he's talking about sexual blessing. And even more than that, as we'll see in a moment. Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well, streams of water in the streets. Let them be yours alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. That's exactly what he says here It's your in Ecclesiastes. This is your reward. Enjoy life with your wife. Rejoice in the wife of your, of your youth. As a loving hind, as a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Yes, the Bible says that. But he's not talking just about physical intimacy. Look at the next phrase. And be exhilarated always with what? Her love. With her love. Why should you be exhilarated with an adulteress, someone who's not your wife. Can I say this? An image on a computer screen or on a smartphone. Why would you even go there? Be satisfied. Now, now th- this is not fair because I don't have time to develop it, but I want to give a 30-second sermon series on to, to those who are junior high, high school, and college singles. Marriage is good. Don't postpone. Pursue it. And I understand saying that, that there are many who would love to be married and God hasn't provided that opportunity yet. 1 Corinthians 7 says, serve him until he brings that and let us pray with you. What I'm most concerned about is extended adolescence, which thinks I'll be married someday, but I'm going to have my fun today. Solomon says, be satisfied with your wife of your what? Youth. Now, parents, if you're panicking, thinking, well, our pastor is promoting young marriages, you're right. I'd rather see young people marry young and struggle than to get older and put it off and to struggle physically and just develop habits that are difficult to cure. Solomon says here back in Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter 9, he says, your wife is your reward, man. Do you treat your wife as a reward? Boy, I don't all the time. Do you treat your wife, do you understand your wife as your reward for being alive? God looked in condescending love at you and gave you her. And you didn't deserve her, even a little. It's so sad when I hear of married couples not getting along. Even more sad when I hear of a divorce And such a blessing to hear of wonderful marriages. We've had several couples in the last few years cross 50 years of marriage. And when they do, I love to have them stand up and say, thank you. Thank you for being what I want to be and having what I want to have and being an example to the church. Proverbs 18, excuse me, 31, verse 28 to 30 says of this wife, her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also praises her and says, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Wow, men, do we, do we compliment our wives and say, you excel them all? Solomon was a hopeless romantic and encouraged biblical Christian romanticism. 
Tell your wife you excel them all. Love her. I love my wife. She is so beautiful inside and out. I will get in trouble later for this, but she is the most godly person I know, more consistent than her husband and pastor in her undying devotion to Christ. She is so much fun. She makes me laugh. She laughs at me. She's an amazing mother. She does more in a day than I do in a week. She's excellent and trustworthy with our checkbook. She's humble. And she's not hard to look at. She's the reward of my life. Does your wife, husband, does your wife know that she's the reward of your life? Because you know what? She is. God gave her to you. And in this passage, we celebrate that. Verse 10, enjoy life while you can because you're going to die someday. It's, uh, it's the simple and painful reality that he says over and over, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge under or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. Whatever you're doing, do it, do it well because you can't do it after you die. Enjoy life. and He's actually saying enjoy work. Leads to number five, the happiest place on earth is number five, where the future is not feared. Where the future is not feared. Verse 11, again, I saw under the sun, see this phrase, under the sun, outside the garden, this side of heaven, I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to the men of ability for the time and chance overtake them all. And moreover, man does not know his time. He's like a fish caught in a treacherous net, like birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. These verses simply describe the ominous fact that there is a lot in the future that could solicit fear. James says, don't worry about that. It's going to come, and you'll, you'll deal with it then. Deal with it now, what you have now. Deal with now what you have now. Fast people don't always win. Warriors don't always win the battle. You know what he's saying? Life is not fair. Parents, as we're, we're raising our kids, and they come up, inevitably they come up, something happens, and they say, that's not fair. And it might not be. What a great time to say, you're right, and neither is life. This is missionary training when you see that life isn't fair. This is good to think that way. He talks about this evil, and it's not necessarily moral evil. It's bad things. The only thing that can elevate our fear Alleviate, rather, our fear of the future is our knowledge of Christ. He says, for time and chance overtake them all. Good guys don't always win. Bad, time, bad guys win sometimes. Fast don't always win the race. Warriors don't always win the battle. You don't know what your time is. 
Death is knocking on the door. Did you realize that you are closer to your death tonight than you were this morning? You say, wow, that's profound. It actually is. And we haven't thought about that. You are nearer to your demise and your death. You are closer to your funeral than you've ever been in your whole life. And you will be tomorrow too. You are on the escalator that will not stop, that ends at your casket. So preparing for that moment is what Solomon says is the impotence for living rightly in this life. If you know how to live, then death is not a fear. If death is a fear, then you have to ask yourself if you're living properly. You'll be happy if you embrace it. If you put it out of your mind, it never really leaves. Lastly, number six. The happiest place on earth is where wisdom is treasured. You knew he was going to say something about wisdom, didn't you? Where wisdom is treasured. Also, this I came to see is wisdom under the sun. Okay, Solomon's, he, he's, he's sitting the, setting the plane angle, the, the wing angle for, for his landing. Here he comes. This I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. He looked at all this, and something impressed him. What was it? There was a small city. He tells a story. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, constructed large siege works against it, battle, battering rams and instruments of war. But there was found in it a poor wise man, And he delivered the city by his wisdom. He had a way to figure out how to beat this oppressive king. And the small city won. Hailed as a hero, moved to be mayor, run for political office, became an elder. No, no, no. Yet no one remembered that poor man. Every time I think of that, I think of Joseph's story. Remember in prison, he helps and helps, remember me, remember me, then he's forgotten. No one remembered the poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. In this situation, this poor wise man contributed his wisdom, which was greater than this oppressive king trying to overthrow this small city. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not Heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. And by this time you're saying, so what is your point, Solomon? What, what are you saying? Wisdom is better than weapons of war. We saw that in the poor man illustration. But one sinner destroys much good. So simple. So, so simple, so profound, but so difficult. Wisdom is better, but wisdom doesn't always win in this world because one sinner destroys much good under the sun. What is he saying here? Wisdom is treasured in the heart of a happy person. Without wisdom, it, it, the opposition, the, what's in opposition here is is living life by wise decisions versus living, versus living life by forced power. Do you think that poor man, poor man was 
remembered by God. The implication here is he has wisdom. The implication of the wise are those who trust and love God. The implication of that is this was a man who understood the ways of God. You think God forgot his wisdom? One of the things Solomon is saying is if you're living your life righteously to be noticed by men, praised by men, and put on a pedestal by men, forget it. That's not our goal. Do you really think the world is going to celebrate our values? No. But the knowledge that God does and that God will, that's the changer. That's the game changer. That's the mind-shifting truth. Verse 15, wisdom makes good decisions. Verse 15, wisdom wisdom is not always honored. Verse 16, wisdom is better than strength. Verse 17, wisdom is powerful. Verse 18, wisdom's enemy is sin. I have a very good friend who recently lost a job because he did what was right and was fired for it. The real reality of this life is good guys don't always win. One of my, the, the narratives that I cannot shake from my mind, it's one of my, I don't know, favorite is, a, is, a, is an awkward thing to say. It's one of my, my most uh, uh, inspiring memories. It's one of the things that my, my, my motivation is tasked, attached to most with my faith. You have all of these um, 253, I think it was, 256 men and women who were burnt at the stake for their faith under the reign of Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary. They were wise. They were righteous. They were doing what was right before the Lord. And it cost them their lives. Now the world would look at that and say, what a waste. What a waste. And God looks at that and says, time to come home and enjoy your eternal reward. Your most powerful, the basic message of Ecclesiastes, your most powerful thought is perspective. Our most powerful ability is the ability to think in God's values and in God's terms rather than the way the world measures success and failure. To sum up, happiness is where you are. If you are righteous and if you're pursuing wisdom. It's repetitive. We've heard these before. God continually wants to pound these things into our minds. 